0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Ambrose, my wife always criticizes me that she says, well, how are they doing? And I say, oh, I never asked. How are Just, you doing, Ambrose? Tell me personally. I'm I'm doing well. Nobody's <laughs> sick.
2: Okay. Everyone's everyone's doing well. How many kids do you have? I have two. Okay, uh,
1: seven and five. Oh wow! Oh, you're at the, the fun stage. Yeah. Good deal. All <laughs> right. Paul and be- I
3: will literally talk for for hours. We'll talk for. We talked the other day for what was it, Paul? Like three three and a half hours or something like that. And I got off the phone, and my wife says, so how's Paul and Faith and the kids doing? And I'll say, you know, I I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. We, we just talked Never. about theology and philosophy the whole entire time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. My wife says the same thing to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Enough of this personal chit-chat. That's right. <laughs> Let's get down. Hey, I'm here with uh, Ambrose who is going to talk tonight again uh, about a particular portion of his book, and Matt. And the subject that we're looking at is the idea of cover-up and the obscuring of information. One of my
3: favorite things right off the bat
1: with Ambrose
3: is his uh, daring Speculation. You know, he's not afraid to uh wade into some of these waters, uh, both theologically and when it comes to ufology. Um, you know, that a lot of us may not be willing to go. He did it with Origin, now he's doing it with this topic. I would encourage everyone who's listening to go back and listen to our first podcast with him. Um, but Ambrose Andriano is the author of an excellent book, Angels, Archons, and Aliens. Um, it's probably the most fun book that I've read in a very long time. It's definitely one of them. Uh, But it's also very scholarly, well-researched, very well done, probably close to, what, a thousand footnotes, something like that. But it's very readable. It's very enjoyable. It it was literally a page-turner. I remember uh, when I first started reading it, I just kind of put everything else aside, you know, and and just wanted to read all of it. I think it's just so difficult with the way that we've, especially in our postmodern context, you know, and and going to school with you. And that's kind of whenever, you know, postmodernity was really coming to the forefront in the academic institutions, right? was kind of the hermeneutics of suspicion, you know, that whenever I was an undergraduate student with him, Um, He had an honors program, and then we were reading, you know, all these postmodern thinkers. Well, maybe as Christians, we should appropriate some of this, you know, stuff that they're doing, because there's actually a bunch of good stuff there, you know, in Nietzsche and Freud and Marx and other places that, as Christians, we should appropriate this stuff and say, that's actually true.
1: Theology has often been done in a fashion that it cannot afford to allow its understanding of God and truth to be challenged. And I think that, of course, is the predominant form that we have in much of theology. Of course, that's in just the Protestant Catholic controversy, you know, that maybe 50 million, 68 million, 100 million, maybe 150 million Protestants have been killed by Catholics because of heresy. You know, we're talking about. Uh, several holocausts here, but there is a direct connection between notions that God is vindictive, retributive, and that governments must too then be primarily violent, and the church must be violent uh, in its suppression of its enemies in any challenge that's brought to it. And so the church and society, and I'm thinking of our society quickly become closed societies rather than open societies. Now we could, you know, obviously we could talk about not just that Catholics have killed Protestants, but Protestants then have also taken up the burning at the stake tradition. So the falsehood in this system, that's what I'm saying. Once you have a closed system, a closed society, there is a sense that Truth is going to be very hard to find out. And I assume that there is a sense in which the world always operates with this same sort of falsehood. That is, our discussion tonight, I think, is a case in point of the way institutions, governments, uh, societies tend to work. Namely, that falsehood, death, destruction, the lie has the last words that our enemies are out to get us and we have to get them first so retribution fear death this is a kind of foundational reality that turns all truths on their head and so yes knowledge is power but knowing grounded on a lie we really
3: and i think more so maybe you and i ambrose being a little bit younger than Paul, though, Paul, you are still very young and and, oh, yeah. uh, and you look great, by the way. I love the oh, beard.
1: Don't, don't overdo it. Yeah.
3: I... <laughs> <laughs> Especially during my time, this is back in about 2006, i going to uh, doing my undergraduate work that it was really kind of a, a culture of, uh, you know, academically of the postmodern sort of hermeneutical suspicion we've all been kind of brought up and trained academically, culturally. And I think that this is a lot about your book. This is why we were talking about it because you're kind of talk today a little bit about institutional um, sort of authority and, and even institutional suspicion and things like that. And, you know, can we trust these people who are in power? Why should we trust them? You know, are they trustworthy? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we really do live in a time and in a culture where it's become very difficult. You know, I think that there are still people who still sort of give themselves over to institutional trust and, Almost sort of blindly follow. We call those people fundamentalists. Just so difficult with the political climate, with our um, academic sort of climate, where it's like, well, who can we trust? You know, who's the authority around here? You know, who can we believe? Can't Mm -hmm. believe our our CEOs, our economic institutions, our political institutions, our military. Who can we trust? That's what we're going to kind of get into a little bit. You know, what he's doing and what you've been doing with psychology and both. Personal psychology and how that psychology functions in institutional settings. A lot of times with your book, the psychotheology of sin and salvation, that's all about, you know, human
1: deception and the the subject of the lie, as you call it. That's the picture of the fall, but I think that's actually our experiential understanding of the way human failure works. Now, in saying this, it may be that truth inheres in a lie. This is actually Zizek's point. He's saying that all we have is a lie, and certainly there's truths in that lie. And that is a, a way of saying this as a Christian is that we may be serving, we may have a lie serving as a kind of foundation, but this does not mean that that there are no truths to be found in the lie or in support of the lie that gets very confusing is sorting out truth and lies and of course there are entire schools of theology that depend on the notion that we really do not have access to the truth to the secret counsels of the eminence of god god is very often a mystery. But of course, in this understanding, it's not just that he's a mystery too large for us to comprehend, but his counsels are dark and obscure and by their very nature incomprehensible. And I think Calvin, of course, is a prime example of this, that he presumes that to question that God has damned most people to hell forever and ever, That that is itself a sign of impiety. And so what is revealed in Christ in this understanding, and I think is wrong, is secondary. The imminent trinity in some way escapes the reality of who Christ is. And so what I'm describing, I think as Christians, we can get just the basic understanding that truth Is not a secret. It's an open revelation. And so we almost have two opposed views of God the open God revealed completely in Christ, and the closed God contains the true counsels of God. And the closed God cannot be allowed too much criticism, as actually, when we start talking about it, oh, this God actually appears kind of vindictive and evil. But, of course, that's that's blasphemous to talk that way. This then gives rise to a theology, which I think is threatened. And we understand here is the way, the truth, and the life. He's open to the crucifixion. He's open to all the challenges that the world has to offer. Secret truths, then, will need to be more aggressive, in a sense.
3: And then to sort of extrapolate that into what often happens in corporate, you know, or communal settings, some of the work that I've appreciated the most that you've done, and the things that have helped me most, just personally, even as a Christian, is to be able to ask, you know, those questions about even things like biblical interpretation, the history of dogma, and the way that that's unfolded. To not be unquestioning. This is a really difficult time to be able to know. It's like, well. Can I trust the the quote-unquote church fathers? Can I trust the councils? Can I trust the church? Can I trust the government, the politicians, etc., etc.? You know, so you've done a lot of work with that.
1: I think that in in my understanding, this is the definition of sin, that sin is a lie, a cover-up, a closed society, an obscuring of truth, And where sin is a lie, the truth concerning this lie must be suppressed and violently suppressed. That is, the two things go together in Scripture, and I think we know they go together in reality. That is, it's a short step between a lie, a cover-up, and a violent suppression of that. Jefferson's vision of the United States is that we would be an informed citizenry. And that's the only way this thing holds together. Uh, Actually, Jefferson writes to a theologian, Richard Price. He says there is a sense of this necessity and submission to it that whenever the people are well-informed, they can be trusted with their own government. That whenever things get so far wrong so as to attract their notice, they may be relied upon to set them to rights through a series of events you know what has happened is the precisely the opposite of jefferson's picture of an open society that our government has taken calculated steps and i don't think there's any controversy here to ensure that the public is not well informed there is a, a cloak of secrecy that has been put into place. This understanding that really is the grounding of you know two hundred some years ago has been largely lost. That we have a huge, sprawling national security bureaucracy, and we have tens of millions of classified documents.
2: Yeah, the the um, the DNI's Avril Haines or ODNI. She she wrote an article. She's like the highest ranking intelligence person in the country. And she wrote a complaint about overclassification. So like that's just a fact.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any controversy. And of course, the deeper you get into it, that we've probably overthrown more democratically elected heads of state than anyone. But of course, you always do that in the dark. That mm-hmm. it should be Congress that is the arbiter of what should and should not be kept secret or what is to be made public. I mean, among the documents that you have is a letter from three congresspersons asking for the disclosure of information regarding aerial phenomena that they are being kept out of the loop. The thing I uh, I found interesting that actually the government itself has discovered that this secret form of government is destructive. So Patrick Monaghan, who has since passed away, he in the Clinton era, he created a commission on protecting and reducing government secrecy. And he wrote in his book, uh, Secrecy, that 80 years from the onset of secrecy as an instrument of national policy— Now is the time for a measure of of definition and restraint. And so we're 100 years into the American age of secrecy. And we have fewer restraints than ever on what gets classified. And clearly, in terms of the CIA, the FBI, and just the cult of secrecy that surrounds the government, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is just the reality Mm -hmm. of, of the way that government is functioning at this point. In 2017, I'm quoting here from an article, federal employees created some 50 million classified records, and that cost taxpayers $18 billion. And what's worse is that many of these classified records, which were created since World War I, when the whole classification system began, we have tens of millions of classified documents that remain classified that we do not have access to this history beyond our discussion tonight. There are still 17,000 pages of classified documents regarding Martin Luther King, Jr., in the National Archives. This is 50 years, you know, more than 50 years after his murder. There are some 130,000 pages of classified documents concerning Frank Wilkinson, who wanted to abolish the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, The Department of Defense's counterintelligence field activity I don't know, CIFA, I guess. Its programs were major sources of, you know, it was under George W. Bush. And there are over 60,000 pages of records targeting domestic dissidents. That is our own citizens. There is the Operation Vulgar Betrayal. It's a counterterrorism investigation of Arab and Muslim Americans. Again, American citizens dating from the 1990s, the FBI then uh, has 1,290,000 pages of records uh, that are classified. And so I think the same thing is true in our conversation about the cover-up or secrecy identified with aerial phenomena. We don't know what to make of this. Uh, we, We may not know in our lifetimes what the truth is. But we know, I mean, I, there is no controversy. This has come out. There's a cover-up of some kind. And so the sad thing is that we have the example of how cover— I mean, we know this is destructive in the church. We know that the cover-up the of the Catholic Church and of Protestant churches, the cover-up has been nothing but pure evil of bishops— priests, popular preachers, you know, even the, the megachurch scandals. And it, it seems to me that institutions gravitate to this kind of secrecy. You know, the more power-possessed they become, the more secret-oriented closed they become. And maybe that's just the law. I just happen to think that's the law of institutions, I think this is a part of the original. I, in other words, I think this is the, the evil that is intrinsic to human failure. And there is a truth that sets us free. But we what we have to often have in the world is blind confusion, mistrust, and obscuring of reality, and a cover up of just the, the basic facts. And so as Christians I think that we 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 should not be afraid of the truth uh even when it it challenge challenges and I think that's the beauty of the truth that frees us up in Christ Uh,
3: And I have the quote right here, Paul, that speaks to exactly what you were what you were saying. But Ambrose says the former the formal strategy of classifying by default every unknown leading to the worldwide classifying under the American NSC leadership is among the most fundamental facts regarding why we are where we are today. In other words, what Ambrose is saying is exactly what you were saying. And that is, is that we, even if it's just an unknown, we classify it. And sometimes we classify it to the very tops of the classification ladder or whatever that may be. Part of what Ambrose is going to talk about today, sort of this institutional, um, you know, what we were doing with the Oppenheimer podcast that we just did. You know, I think that where we came out on that is that, and Christopher Nolan really brings this out is that because Oppenheimer was a dissident, uh quite specifically right christopher nolan really sort of zeroes in on this that oppenheimer at first had these left-leaning politics where he was going to communist you know gatherings and conversations and he himself didn't he wasn't a communist or at least he said he wasn't but he was very interested in the ideology he wanted to learn more about it he said you know he wanted he was very cultured uh he wanted to understand you know what was going on with this political movement but It was sort of a red flag against him later on in his life, right? And the reason why I bring that up is because once the people in power, the authorities decided that this was the course that we have charted.
1: Yeah, I think with Oppenheimer, after he, he of course, bought into the whole secrecy surrounding the atomic bomb, but then I think what actually got him into trouble was he, he wanted to, in fact, share that. And there were many scientists who wanted to just make this public, open information, which, of course, would have, uh, the whole notion of an arms race would have been deflated by that.
2: Yeah. The fun fact is uh, uh, Oppenheimer and I have the same birthday.
1: Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. Both born April 22nd. We had a lot of conversation surrounding him. He was kind of fascinating in, in several senses, but I guess in the end, to be the father of the atomic bomb, that clearly did not rest well upon his conscience. But in a sense, I wished it did not rest as well as it did. Here's a guy who has brilliant insight into, you know, physical reality. He had this great knowledge, this truth that he discovered about physics, but he, this was, combined with a foundation that is a kind of, you know, incapacity to think imaginatively beyond the political, social structures of which he is a part. So with this great knowledge comes power for great destruction. That is, he's kind of mixed this together.
3: Um, I didn't bring Oppenheimer up to take us off topic. What I was trying to get to is David Grush. So my point is, is this. Robert Oppenheimer, it seemed to the government, at least at one point, was open to being a dissident, right? And the American government had made a decision. It seems like you've already brought up Dr. Martin Luther King and others. So you had all these different forces that were absolutely, certainly uh, committed to working against dissidents. And so there was the whole McCarthyism. There was the whole idea that if you had any sort of communist suspicions whatsoever, you were held uh, you yourself were, were held in suspicion, right? And so in other words, what is happening here is that you have these institutional authorities and this power that decide this is the way that we're going to do it. And they're quite fundamentalist about it, right? In the same way that the religious authorities will be. This is how fundamentalism always works. And that is, is that if you're not completely on board with us, if you're not headed, uh, you know, no questions asked in the same direction as we are, then you, we're going to hold you under suspicion right? You're not really one of us. That's always the fundamentalist sort of suspicion here, right? And so what happens is with Oppenheimer, you know, he ends up making the decision that he's not going to be a dissident anymore. He's going to just sort of go along with the program so that he can be a part of the Manhattan Project, right? But when it comes to the work that Ambrose has done, you know, in his book, and he's going to get into this, he talks about how, you know, who who is it that we can trust? Paul, you touched on it earlier, that Whenever there's these church scandals, you know, do we trust the dozens and dozens of, you know, kids that are coming forward to say that they were abused, you know, by a priest, if not hundreds or if not thousands? Uh, or do we side with the institutional church? You know, whenever these women come forward and say, uh, I've been sexually harassed by this mega church pastor, who do we believe? In other words, who can we believe? And so Ambrose makes this uh, really great case in his book that, when it comes to this particular topic with UFOs and UAPs, he's raising the question can these institutions be trusted? And maybe it's just like in the case of the church scandal that we have to actually listen to the individuals because they're the ones that don't have anything to lose, right? Whereas uh, the government is the one that has everything to lose in this case, right? Which is their power. Recently, the whistleblower David Grush came forward and there was these congressional hearings that were held. And so, Ambrose, I just wanted to see if you'd bring us up to speed on who is David Grush? Why was there a congressional hearing on UFO?
2: Well, the congressional hearing that happened on July 26th, I think, was a pretty historic moment. A few notes on the veteran David Grush. Uh, This is not just some guy. (laughs) He was on the White House bigot list for hand delivering briefings to the president of the United States. He was the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency's senior technical advisor for UAP analysis. He was part of the NRO and he was a representative aiding the UAP task force under its former director, the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence, senior senior intelligence analysis, Jay Stratton to investigate claims of a UFO cover-up. For those who don't know, Jay Stratton is also the mastermind behind hiring Luis Elizondo to create the DIA's UFO investigation program, ATIP, in 2007, funded with the help of the late Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid, which was completely unknown until the 2017 New York Times article broke that story. Uh, Stratton is also the one who created the Navy's rebranding of UFO to UAP to remove stigma. So the reason why we're all talking about UAPs instead of UFOs is because of this guy, Jay Stratton. and he's the one who hired uh, David Grush. So David Grush spent four years investigating an officially sanction- an officially sanctioned capacity cleared for over 2,000 special access programs, talking to 40 insiders with firsthand knowledge of the saucers and the aliens. He was provided documentation, technical reports, photographs, and ultimately concluded that there was indeed a UFO program being withheld from the UAP task force to thwart uh, congressional oversight. And he found that there was actually a misappropriation of funds. These uh, private contractors would be uh, uh, asking for a certain amount of money. Congress would approve it, and then they would kind of funnel part of that money off into black projects and not tell Congress what they were doing. So that was a huge no no. Grush filed a formal whistleblower complaint on May 25th of last year, and he spent 11 hours briefing the right channels about his findings and the uh, intelligence community inspector general thomas monheim deemed grush's claims to be both credible and urgent as he should listeners need to know that david grush would not have made it all the way to a congressional hearing and with senate majority leader chuck schumer introducing a ufo declassification bill if what he said was actually unsupported by his classified evidence. He's not uh, just out here offering a bunch of wild speculation with no evidence, as is often erroneously reported. He has the receipts. He was told exactly where the saucers are hidden. Uh, he has the names of the programs, the people involved. He just can't tell us, the unclassified public. But Congress knows much more than we, than most people do about what's going on and that's why they're taking it seriously i mean just read the writing on the wall it's not rocket science
1: (laughs) david gresh he is not claiming himself to have seen or or in other words this is not firsthand but he's claiming that because of his governmental position he then was receiving these reports and so what exactly are his allegations
2: his his evidence is based on his 40 insiders who who supplied him with documentation and all all of the necessary evidence which he then gave to the inspector general so the inspector general has it there needs to be communication between him and Congress and that's that's where we're at right now because Congress doesn't have the clearances the Air Force bases are like denying them access to SCIFs, which stands for sensitive compartmental compartmentalized information facility. So Congress is like getting mad. They're not getting access to what they need to. But as far as the allegations are concerned, uh, David Grush told South Carolina, representative, this is during the hearing, told South Carolina Representative Nancy Mace, mind you, under oath with the threat of prison, if guilty of perjury, that non-human bodies came with the recovery of crash saucers. And I know some people on the internet are going to great lengths to pick apart his use of the word biologics to mean pretty much everything except bodies. But Gresh made it clear that he's just restating the things that he said in his long-form News Nation interview with Australian journalist Ross Coulthart, where he affirmed that physical corpses of flying saucer pilots were recovered. Again, this is based on his official multi-year Investigation of many insiders with firsthand involvement in UFO programs. He said the evidence empirically points to this being true. If this is true, and I would argue it is, this means that the evangelical guys going around, like Dr. Hugh Ross, going to different churches and podcasts, telling Christians everywhere that all this UFO stuff is just immaterial, incorporeal demons summoned by the occult, and that true Christians never see UFOs and nobody ever has any physical evidence, are quite wrong. If this were not bad enough, mainstream academics have also been mindlessly parroting uh, Carl Jung's wrong initial interpretation of flying saucers since 1958, calling it a quote-unquote modern myth and how it's a projection of the human mind. I mean, just as, as an aside, I know academics love to pretend to investigate things, these fringe subjects just to pat themselves on the back after giving the illusion of having dared entered unknown territory only to circle back where they began and ultimately make no speculative sacrifice whatsoever. But now we know this kind of dismissive interpretation was wrong before it even surfaced as revealed in the September 23rd, 1947 declassified secret report from Lieutenant General Nathan Twining of air material command to Brigadier General George Shulgin when he writes concerning the flying disks, quote, the phenomenon reported is something real and not visionary or fictitious, unquote. That was the official classified opinion of the generals read into the program in 1947, regardless of how this may contradict the public spin of the story ambrose
3: i mean your book uh, you know dr- really draws this out quite well and again i would encourage listeners to go out and and get a copy uh because it is you know excellent but uh, what you know is the historical evidence for these claims about the ufo crash retrieval program
2: i know we were talking about oppenheimer and know you guys did an episode on that but that's a, a pretty good segue into a certain character that's in the movie and i think is the absolute most important individual to understand when it comes to the very beginning of the UFO cover-up in the 1940s, and that person is Dr. Vannevar Bush. So who is this guy? Well, Bush was a graduate from MIT. He founded Raytheon in 1922. Let's just think about that for a second. What is now called RTX, the second largest defense contractor in the United States, second only to Lockheed Martin was originally created by Vannevar Bush. Okay, there's as an aside, he was also the Master Mason of the Richard C. McLaurin Freemasonry Lodge in the same year. By 1932, he was the Dean of MIT School of Engineering. By 1938, he was the President of the Carnegie Institution of Washington. And by 1939, he was appointed Chairman of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, the precursor to NASA. By 1940, he was the chairman of the National Defense Research Committee, the NDRC. And by 1941, he was the director of the Office of Scientific Research and Development, the OSRD, and leading the efforts of the Manhattan Project. Side note, Nikola Tesla's famous missing files that were, you know, essentially stolen by the FBI were handed over to Vannevar Bush's OSRD. It was given to, um, I think it was John John Trump of the famous Trump family, <laughs> Trump was working for uh, Bush's OSRD, but by 1945, uh, he took what he knew of NACA and masterminded the National Science Foundation. In the same year, he partnered with Douglas Aircraft Company, which is now Boeing, to create Project RAND, which is now we know as RAND Corporation, RAND meaning Research and Development. Vannevar Bush was President Roosevelt's and President Truman's right-hand man when it came to anything related to scientific research and development. Also important is the fact that uh, Bush's team from MIT included Dr. Harold Edgerton, Dr. Kenneth Hirschhausen, and Dr. Herbert Greyer. In 1947, these men created EG&G, the Atomic Energy Commission's contractor that basically controls the entire southern half of Nevada and who employs people at Area 51. Bob Lazar said that he was employed through eg Uh Vannevar Bush seems to be at the heart of the legacy UFO program.
3: And Ambrose, just to be clear, Vannevar Bush is not part of the famous Bush family, correct?
1: No, I don't think there's a, a relation there. Okay. But the point with him is, if anybody had insight into government information on unidentified flying objects this might be the guy is that the point definitely yeah and does that then relate to the formation of this commission put together was it uh what is it the majestic documents that
2: uh yeah. so um in the early uh 1980s the television producer Jamie Shandera received an unmarked package in the mail sent from it's the the package said it was sent from Albuquerque New Mexico as the home of Kirtland Air Force Base which houses a major facility for the Department of Energy inside or at the time it was the Atomic Energy Commission uh, inside the package was a roll of 35 millimeter film which captured photographs that somebody took of a curious document now known as the uh, the famous Controversial 1952 Top Secret Magic Eisenhower Briefing, which was allegedly a memo given to the president-elect Eisenhower explaining the origins and purpose of a top secret research and development group known as Majestic 12, created by Harry Truman on September 24, 1947, to be led by Dr. Vannevar Bush, Secretary James Forrestal, and the Director of Central Intelligence, Roscoe Hillencotter. Appended at the end of the briefing is the original uh, 1947 top secret eyes only uh, presidential letter from Truman to Forrestal authorizing Operation Majestic 12 with his presidential signature at the bottom. When the Majestic documents began to surface, the UFO community was never the same and it is still divided over them to this day. But even if people reject the, the gigantic corpus, that is the majestic documents, as a hoax, we know for a fact that according to the November 29, 1983 written testimony of uh, Dr. Robert Irving Sarbacher to researcher Bill Steinman, uh, there were at, at the very least, two individuals that he was personally aware of who were absolutely involved with the secret study of crash saucers. The two he names is Dr. John von Neumann and Dr. Vannevar Bush. And he also adds J. Robert Oppenheimer as a, as a kind of a maybe. He, he thinks that he was involved too. Sarbacher was the one who in 1950 told Canadian director Project Magnet the engineer, Wilbert Brockhaus-Smith, that the flying saucer subject was classified two points higher than the H-bomb. Smith's top-secret correspondence document, dated November 21st, 1950, also explicitly names Vannevar Bush as the head of a UFO R&D program. Again, that was written in 1950, while Bush was still very much actively involved. Dr. Sarbacher provided Stanton Freeman with a lead and said that Dr. Eric Walker, then president of Penn State University and chairman of the National Science Foundation's Committee for Engineering, also attended UFO meetings at Wright Patterson Air Force Base in the early 1950s regarding the recovery of flying saucers and the bodies of the pilots. Researcher Bill Steinman recorded in his 1987 phone conversation with Dr. Walker and confirmed this information, and Walker said, quote, "Yes, I know of MJ12. I have known about them for 40 years. You are delving into an area that you can do absolutely nothing about. Why don't you just leave it alone and drop it?" Unquote. Note that this was in 1987. 40 years prior would be 1947, so that's very interesting.
3: It is. And, you know, back to what we were saying earlier about dissidents and the immense pressures that are placed upon people who are working within these institutions, you know, the punitive I read, I think it might have been in a footnote, maybe not in your book, where, I mean, people are looking at, you know, huge fines up to 10 years in prison um, we know, you know what they do to people who are quote unquote traders. You know they send them out to Colorado, ADX, Florence out there, and they put them in twenty-three hour solitary confinement. And so there's the most terrifying sorts of repercussions, right, for anybody who might want to come forward. People like David Grush and others. You know there's the stigmatization, you know, of pilots and other things. And before we talk more about the majestic, I was just wondering if you can you talk a little bit more about uh, because I think it's a strong point about sort of the institutional pressures that are placed upon people versus the individuals that I think that, you know, you wrote your book in large part to come to the aid of people who have been ridiculed, people who are, who have been made fun of, have been kicked out of their church or whatever it is, because, you know, in the same way that people who maybe, you know, accuse uh, priests and, and pastors and things like this of different crimes, there's a, there's a pressure, right, to, to they're, they're afraid to come forward for all these different sort of reprisals and things like that. What David Grush is doing, you know, people like him and people like you writing this book, it's it's a this is risky business.
2: Yeah, I mean, right from the very beginning, there was a huge pressure to not report. Like if you were if you were in the military, and you had an experience, uh, all of all of the, the incentive was against you coming forward. And like I, m- I mentioned in the book, the Joint Army Navy Air Force publication or JNAP 146E regulation stated that military personnel with top secret clearances are at the risk of a ten thousand dollar fine and ten years in prison if they disclose classified information regarding U- the UFO phenomenon without explicit permission.
3: And today, today that would be about a hundred grand, by the way, <laughs> in today's numbers. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's that's not a small amount. <laughs> And then uh, there's also the Air Force Regulation uh, 202, which talks about kind of similar things about covering things up.
3: I mean, with David Grush, I mean, look what's happening to him even right now. We knew this was going to happen That there was going to be reprisals and things like that. But as you talked about, this is a guy who is highly decorated, has the utmost respect uh, of his peers, his colleagues. No one has come out to say anything about his character or anything like that. But then, of course, he's being smeared. Uh, for mental health issues related to PTSD, uh, after a, a friend of him, uh, you know, of his took his life after coming home from Afghanistan, and th- this is how it is with these institutional. Th- these are very real things that we're talking about, just for us as a group. Right, we've all worked with with different in different situations where uh, there there's such a pressure to sort of conform, right? Whether it's theologically, whether it's ideologically, whether it's institutionally. Yeah.
2: The scary thing is that. David Grush didn't isn't a whistleblower in the same sense as like Edward Snowden. Grush is not revealing classified information. He went through all the right channels and did it properly. Right. He had permission to do to say the things that he said. And they're still going after him. Right. so like, what does that say?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's not like, you know, you could maybe say with Julian Assange, say you could say, well, you know, he was um, releasing classified information that jeopardized American lives and things like that. And we could argue about that, you know, but what your point with David Grush is, is, yeah, but he this is a guy who went through all the proper channels who mm-hmm. has n- no one has a bad word to say about this guy. He used to debrief the, pre- you know, was, you know talk to the president, give him the daily briefings, a man of the highest integrity, right? In other words, with nothing to gain and everything to lose, um, who said during the, you know, during the the hearings that um, he had already been sort of, I don't know if you use the word threatened, but that's certainly what he was intimating, that he was mm-hmm. uh, knew that there was reprisals and things that that could come from this. And my point in all this is to say that it's so... Uh, crazy to me, especially after our conversation about Oppenheimer, you know, in other words, like that, there really does seem to be this powerful force of at, at work here of deception secrecy, violence, retribution, if you don't toe the line uh, with the sort of, you know, fundamentalism that the the group, whatever the group may be, you know, is saying that this is the line that you have to walk. If you come out, if you go outside of it, you're not one of us anymore. And by the way, we might throw you into solitary confinement for the next 10 to 25 years, even though you're a person of impeccable credentials, you know, And, and even though you're trying to protect american democracy this is what you know lieutenant ryan graves and people like that are saying that hey we're just trying to look out for aviators you know there's things in the sky that we're afraid that uh pilots are going to end up crashing into because they're not supposed to be there but they are there and they're being reported more we're actually there for a long time they weren't being reported but because of uh ryan graves work now they're hopefully going to be reported you know more and more and the stigmatization is going to go away but the stigmatization, what's interesting to me is that 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 we can call it that, but any type of whistleblowing, questioning of sort of institutional authority, et cetera, right, can sort of carry with it this kind of suspicion or demonization. Or or whatever. This is what happened has happened to a lot of our theological heroes, right? That they that they call into question. They say, "Hey, wait a second. I don't know." And this is something a little bit different, right? I mean, Ambrose is coming at this from a very sort of um, historical. And and frankly, I mean, I think that what David Gresham people are saying is that no, yeah, there was criminal. There's this is a criminal. Conspiracy, right? That, that may have in fact cost people their lives. That may, you know, people may have been killed. You know, you talk about different things in your book with, uh, quote unquote suicides and things like that. And the list goes on and on of people who were not towing the party line and who ended up losing. You know, that's the thing that's so sad about David Grush is that this is a guy again with impeccable credentials. Uh, who has jeopardized his his career and potentially his own health, certainly his mental health. That's the type of level, I guess, that that we're dealing with here. And I think that what Ambrose is trying to do for us is to do the hard work and the research to say, hey, this isn't just some kooky conspiracy theory stuff. It's like we have the declassified documentation. And so with that being said, you were talking about Majestic and have there, has there any evidence that something called Majestic, you know, existed in official declassified documents.
2: Yeah, so uh, just before I get into that, as an aside, uh, you mentioned Ryan Graves talking about the threat to pilots. That is exactly the argument that Donald Kehoe made in the early 1950s. Like that was one of the fir- that was basically the first argument that came out for, for like the disclosure side. Of the UFOs, and it was kind of amusing to me. In 1952, the uh, June-July area there was a huge UFO wave, a UFO flap over Washington, D.C., over the Capitol. People were like speculating through the roof, and it led to a press conference on July 29, 1952. And at this press conference, uh Air Force Major General John Samford took to the mic and basically like kind of m- made dismissive comments. And then he leaves, and then (laughs) I was cracking up because, and then immediately after him, uh, Marine Corps Major uh, Donald Kehoe takes to the mic. He 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 begins with the quote, "With all due respect to the Air Force," and then (laughs) goes into why, like, he doesn't believe anything he just said.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I literally read that today and started laughing out loud.
2: Yeah, and he's like, "Yeah, it's like I know what these are. These are." Uh, flying sauces of interplanetary origin and they're a threat to pilots and then mic drops.
3: <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> was he was talking. saying that you said in 1950 or whatever. I mean it was in
2: 1952 when he said that. Yeah, yeah.
3: It's unreal. It's unreal. Um,
2: but yeah. So with the majestic documents, nuclear physicist Stan Friedman uh wrote a formal defense of them in the nineteen nineties with his, I think, pretty great book called Top Secret Slash Magic, M A J I C. And his aerospace superior at McDonnell Douglas, Dr. Robert Wood, uh, became the appointed authenticator for the documents, uh, analyzing everything down to the typeset. And so Stan Friedman would get these documents and he'd have uh, Robert Wood take a look at them. And then so Robert Wood and his son, Ryan, created uh, what's now MajesticDocuments.com, where it's like a hub for for hosting all of them now, uh, former Air Force OSI special agent Richard Doty said the documents were forgeries, which didn't abide by DoD 5200 protocol of classification. But he thought the information contained inside them were real; it was it was factual information. Some believe that Doty wrote them himself, but he denies this, and I personally find that pretty improbable. Uh, former CIA pilot. Uh, John Lear of Learjet had his mother, Moya Olson Lear, ask her very good friend of the family, United States Air Force General James Harold Doolittle, if Majestic 12 was real. This was in the 80s. And Doolittle, in confidence, said, yes, but he can't talk about it. This single validation was the reason John Lear even entered UFOlogy in the first place. Even the MJ-12 skeptic Uh, John Greenwald, the creator of the Black Vault, which hosts like millions of declassified documents, uh, in his recent interview with Kurt Jai noted how strange it was that the FBI files on all 12 men listed in the Eisenhower briefing happened to either be fully or partially destroyed. The FBI is also the government entity who called the documents bogus. So go figure. However, I must add that the FBI already testified to the reality of a crash retrieval program in two of its own documents. We have the uh, Dallas FBI telex from July 8th, 1947, which was sent to Strategic Air Command saying that they were told by official channels when they called on the telephone that a hexagonal weather balloon had just crashed in Roswell but that telephone conversations they discovered between the same group and Wright Field told a different story. And then secondly, uh, three years later, we have the March 22nd, 1950 FBI memo from Guy Hotel to J. Edgar Hoover saying that the Air Force's investigator reported the retrieval of three flying saucers in New Mexico, which were 50 feet in diameter occupied by three-foot-tall occupants dressed in metallic cloth, and that it was believed that high-powered radar interference was bringing the saucers down. That was that's in an official FBI document from 1950. As an aside, radar weapons uh, may not be the only reason the saucers were crashing, as Air Force Colonel Ross Diedrichson, assigned to the Atomic Energy Commission, already blew the whistle in his interview with Stephen Greer on why they crash. Colonel Diedrichsen said that the United States learned in 1961 that our Pacific atomic bomb testing was shutting down all radio wave transmission, polluting the Earth's magnetic field, and distorting the ionosphere, which the saucers depended upon for flight. Now, no matter what one thinks of the majestic documents, real or not, it represents, in my view, the most probable course of events, even if the entire thing is fiction. It doesn't change the fact that history would have naturally unfolded in a similar way. For instance, even an incompetent president would have created a working group for studying crash retrievals because you have to know if it's Soviet technology or not. This is a basic mandatory defense strategy. You literally have to do that or you lose. Now, there is, in fact, a special studies project named Majestic. What isn't verified is what exactly the program consisted of, but something uh, did indeed exist under this name. This is verifiable from declassified documents from 1952 to 1954, as I show in my book, for instance, uh, the top secret September 25th, 1952 memo from the Joint Chiefs of Staff signed by Navy Admiral William G. Layler, which explicitly details nine different plans for something called Majestic and some of those plans include psychological warfare unconventional warfare cover and transportation guidance the July 14th 1954 declassified top secret memo from Robert Cutler to Nathan Twining explicitly states national security council mj12 special studies project unquote. "it is worth mentioning that in 1989 the area 51 whistleblower bob lazar came forward revealing a W-2 which showed that he had worked for the rather secretive Department of Naval Intelligence under a Department of Energy contract number traced to Kirtland Air Force Base and the MAJ abbreviation is listed as the point of contact. Madge, I wonder what that means. Lazar's W-2 was definitively proven legitimate by NASA contractor Bob Exler and states that the employer identification number was assigned by a classified intelligence agency. But the operator, of course, couldn't tell him the agency. This makes me wonder if the Department of Naval Intelligence is a classified agency working with the the, the Department of Energy, because you're not going to find that with a Google search. What you'll find is the Office of Naval Intelligence, the ONI.
3: Paul, I'm, I'm interested, um, and I don't want to you know catch you off guard here, but I'm just wondering how... Whenever I came across Ambrose's book, you know, I had already sort of decided, you know, that, hey, I, th- I know our size. Well, actually, I don't know. Nobody can really understand how our sort of small <laughs> our planet is in the big scheme of the universe uh, because it's that ridiculously large. But I knew enough to know that, boy, there's a real good chance that we aren't alone uh, in the universe. And uh, then also had sort of the experience that I talked about in our first podcast where I saw something. If people want to listen to that, they can go back to the first podcast with Ambrose and listen to it. But I guess whenever I came across Ambrose's book, Paul, I thought, you know i knew it you know look you know here's here's sort of like all the proof you know of what i thought was you know the truth but i know that you were kind of coming at this from a little bit of a different um place and so i'm wondering what your kind of visceral reaction was you know or has been as you've been doing this research reading the book seeing kind of like the Uh, I I just like the way that Ambrose put together the case. It's like, well, here's all these different stories from all these different people, from all these different, uh, you know, texts and from time, you know, from 1500 years ago, from different uh, places all around the world. And that's actually probably my favorite part of the book, just because I really love to see like, wow, look, they're talking about these really similar things in Africa. And even Josephus, you know, mentions it. And even Josephus says, well, I know this sounds like it's not real or whatever. There's a battle in the skies, but it really did happen. You know, Josephus, who's like this really respected uh, historian that Christians appeal to all the time, says there was a battle in the skies and it's not something that I'm you know making up. This actually happened. Um, also, people like Cyril of Alexandria and others have talked about this stuff. So Ambrose lays all that out in his book and then just talks about all the different, well, not all the different, but many different accounts that are similar. And then after that sort of lays out all this different declassified documentation, uh, some of which he's going over now, but there's much, much more there, you know, that we just couldn't cover all of it. You know what I mean? It's just a mountain of evidence. So I'm just wondering like, what was your feeling or your thoughts whenever you started to dive into this a little bit more? Because I know at first it's probably like, we you know, what are we doing here? This is a theology podcast, you know, And um, but you've always been open, you know, and you've always been uh, daring in your speculation. It's been the very thing that has sort of quote unquote, gotten you in trouble, right? That whenever you were going head to head with the powers that be at your institution um, and you ended up ha- losing a lot, you know, your, 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 um, your work, you know, your job and thank God, you know, it ended up uh, to where you're doing forging power Shares now. And we're doing all kinds of Really awesome, cool things together. But, you know, at the time it was a terrible thing, you know, and it was precisely because you were sort of standing up to, uh, standing on the truth that you had studied and that you knew in your heart and that you know, by the way, the vast majority of the Christian tradition affirms, et cetera. but it was a very difficult thing for you to do. So you've always been very open to theological speculation, to calling into question, you know, the different institutional, quote-unquote, authorities, uh, the official narratives, you know, whether church or secular or whatever. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are kind of so far.
1: Kind of I captured it in the introduction, and that is that I think as a Christian— the way in which we understand the truth of Christ, that, that this should give us a boldness and a willingness to consider things that may, in fact, we, we don't know quite what to do with, whether, whether it appears challenging or not. And I guess I'm still there. I don't know, you know, I don't have a some firm opinion as to what this may be. I think this and in, in our conversation now, there, there is no question there's a cover-up. Our government is telling us there is this cover-up. You know, it's not like I would be blown out of the water either way. At At this point in time, I've not landed anywhere. I think that it is interesting, the phenomena of a cover-up. There clearly is something behind the cover-up. I can't say that i've arrived at, and i'd guess that no one can as to what this might be now and so when when we acknowledge okay there's something there then we can get into okay what's the there that's there and i don't know it's not that i'm unwilling to consider it it's just that i at this point in time i don't know where to go with it i'm a bit of an agnostic in regard to what it might be. I just don't I don't I don't know. And I think that's a, a perfectly legitimate place to be.
3: Absolutely. I you know, no doubt about it. Uh just the fact that you're willing to have this conversation, you know, says says a lot. But I know for me as a reader, and again, I would encourage anybody listening to go out and get a copy of Angels, Archons, and Aliens. I I just can't help it. I would think that any reader, Christian or otherwise or whatever, when you're confronted with uh, the amount of evidence, it's kind of shocking. It's kind of stunning, right? Because I would just think anybody that would just be reading through that would think like, my gosh, man, look at this. This is like, unless this is all one forgery after another and one fraud after another with these documents and stuff like that, then man, there's something, there's something definitely here. And what we haven't gotten into um, and what we're hoping to get into with Ambrose in the future are more of the theological implications. I think that what Ambrose is doing now is laying out and saying, look, this is the history that we have. This is, this is, he's done the thorough research to say, and by the way, this is just the 1940s guys, you know what I mean? So it's like, we can go through and say, okay, what happened in the fifties and the sixties? And we, he can do all that, you know, but the point for I think forging plowshares is is that, of course, this has all sorts of implications for theology, for ecclesiology, for human history, perhaps for anthropology, all sorts of different things like that. So I, I me personally, I'm super interested in in finding out more about the history because I think that just like origin would say or whoever else, it's like, well, you got to know the historical first, right? So that you can kind of peel back the layers of the onion, you know, and kind of dig deeper as to what's going on behind, but you got to, you got to know the history, right? So I think that this research and this work that, that Ambrose is doing, I just, I just find it super interesting and I'm, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to talking more in the future about, well, what might this mean uh, even if we're just speculating, you know, this is what origin of Alexandria did. He said, well, what if there are many worlds or what if the apokatastasis is, is the way that it is, or, you know, perhaps is like origin's favorite word, you know? So it's like, so we could come at this conversation with that. It's like, well, perhaps there are extraterrestrial intelligences. What might that mean for theology and history and all these different things? So I think that it's a really cool conversation. That's not just a woo woo type way out there type thing. Ambrose is showing us that there's, there's meat on the bone, you know, on this one. So that's what I find really, uh, really kind of exciting.
1: One of the things that I'd like to ask Ambrose, and that is that, you know, that whatever this is, has more or less been benign. That is, I'm afraid that what we might do is, is, and I said this again, as I introduced it, I'm afraid that we might project a kind of hostility and, you know, kind of violence onto whatever this is, and that doesn't, in fact, seem to be the case. Is that true, Ambrose?
2: I fully agree with your your intuition. I think that is exactly what happens all the time, is that people do project their own fear of the unknown onto the unknown. And they demonize it. But in this case, I think I kind of go against calling it a phenomenon as if it's one thing. I think it's a multitude of phenomena that are interacting with this planet. Much of it is benign, um, and some of it isn't. I think it's a whole mixed bag. Some people have uh, great experiences, some people have, like, uh, their experience could be summarized with a giant question mark, like, what the heck just happened? Okay, whatever. I'm going to the store, right? And then, so that that's like benign, right? But then you have you have different categories of harm, some encounters that are uh, distinctly hostile, like with intent. And then you have other other encounters that are, shall we say you you got burned because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time? You know it had nothing to do with intent. right? You were just too close if you were like on, just happened to wander into a, a runway while an airplane was going down <laughs> like, and you get ran over. That's not because the airplane hated you. Right. So I think a lot of people get like radiation burns and stuff like that, just because they get physically too close to a lot of, uh, a lot of the saucers while they're in certain modes or whatever, but
3: and not to cut you off Ambrose, but but Ambrose documents all this stuff too. So that's, this isn't just, you know, pure speculation or conjecture. Um, but he and, he, and I, part of the tone of the book, I also appreciate. It's like, um, I, I likened it to JFK, the movie JFK, you know, where Oliver Stone says, here's, you know, here's everything i got on this and you know i'm gonna you figure it out you know let the reader understand let the reader decide or whatever but that was the one of the hardest parts of the book for me was the you know the sort of the stuff with the abductions and stuff because it gets weird you know but if you start listening to people like travis walton and it's like well i don't know you gotta you gotta do something with travis walton you either think he's a liar Or not. I personally don't think that I think that he's telling the truth. So I thought the same thing, Paul, at first, I was like, well, this seems relatively benign. And maybe these are they're just here to help us. And look, they turned off the nukes over here, which by the way, Ambrose documents. And but then it's like, you find out, yeah, but they turned them on over here, you know, to show us, you know, possibly, you know, what what they can do or whatever. But the other thing that Ambrose, I think, has done, too, is to say, hey, I understand why to a degree that the government has been hesitant to just sort of clunk us over the head with the quote unquote truth, you know, that there really is a national security uh, there's issues that's, you know, thing, and there are existential reasons for people's um, ideals and values and things like that at stake. And that we might need to be gentle with, with this thing, you know? And so I appreciated that sort of tact, you know, but it definitely, and by the way, that's what's cool about these conversations that hopefully we're going to have with Ambrose because we're just laying out the historical stuff, but whenever we start getting into what he does in his book, into some of like the biblical questions, you know, we're, we're not going to cover that today, but, um, you know, some of the questions for theology, it's like, man, this stuff starts to get super complicated. It really does. Um, and really difficult. And I don't care who you are. It's like, it's going to raise some difficult issues. Right. But one of the things that got me with Ambrose's book is in the very beginning where he said, look, you either you had, you kind of have to make a decision. You're either going to say that all these people are liars or fools. Or, you know, madmen or whatever, which, by the way, he makes the point that this, again, with institutional sorts of issues where people come forward and they say that can't be true. You know, that can another little boy comes forward and people say that can't be true. You know, you're um, but after it keeps happening and happening and happening, it's like, well, at some point Ambrose is writing to Christians to say, well, Christian testimony, you know, the Christian religion stands or falls on witness testimony, so what are we going to do with all these people are we just going to keep saying travis walton you're a liar commander david fravor you're crazy ryan graves you're an idiot i mean it's like it seems silly right at some point to to do that and not and i'm by the way uncharitable uh right that doesn't mean that like every single issue that comes up it's like oh we gotta you know just believe it or whatever but it does I, i think whenever you're faced with all this evidence i couldn't help at least for me as a reader to think boy this would mean that all the people who were abducted, all the people who have seen stuff, all these classification, you know, these documents that were classified, the majestic, or whatever, that all of it is this massive sort of c- connected lie <laughs> where all these people who are completely disconnected are in on the same deception. And to me, I was like, that just seems kind of silly. That can't be what's going on here.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I I do think that these sort of institutional pressures i mean i know just think of it like this if an if tonight if an alien shows up in my house or some sort of you know entity it's like man i would be scared to probably tell my wife about that you know um and i love her she loves me she's my best friend but i would still i mean honestly ambrose would probably be the first person i would call you know because i know that he would actually listen to me and um wouldn't mm-hmm. make me feel like i was crazy or whatever else but um you know if that did happen which apparently it has to many people, as Ambrose shows in his book, um, you know, the, the the pressure just to not say anything just because you j- just like I don't want to say just like, but maybe if you were sexually violated in some way, especially if it was, you know, if you're young and it was a male, you know, another male that was abusing you or something like that, just like the shame of it all might just make you say, I'm not going to talk about this, you know, so the the psychological repercussions in that sense. Um, and then you also have the issue of someone like, you know, um, David Grush, where it's like, man, he's really putting himself out there. He's going to, on national television on a, in a congressional hearing. He knows that he hasn't actually seen stuff with his own eye. He, he's never touched an alien body or whatever that. Mm-hmm. But he's done such research over the course of all these different years that he said, you know what? I need to do this for like other people, for the American people, which, again, has the kind of correlation with what people have done in the churches when they come forward. And they got to say, I, someone's got to put a stop to this guy. He's hurting people. You know, people are getting hurt. And so it, there. I guess I'm not able to articulate it as well as, as I would like to, but there does seem to be this um, sort of issue at play here with power and with institutional authority and with shame. Uh, the subtitle of Ambrose's book, which I like. Is an assessment of the theological implications and the psychological impact of the close encounters phenomena. In other words, like this stuff has really affected a lot of people in super personal ways, and people have lost their lives, people have committed suicide, people have gotten addicted to drugs and alcohol, people have lost their wives, their, you know, everything over this thing. It's as Christians, we should probably charitably at least be willing to intelligently think through these things together and, and not being naive about it, but understanding that we know enough about institutional evil uh, and the nature of human deception and things like that, that, uh, and we're humble enough to say, Hey, we, this isn't a geocentric universe. Like we used to think that it was, <laughs> you know, those days are over. So I, I just appreciate the the work again, for me, it was something that I already thought uh, it was definitely a possibility, but whenever I read Ambrose's book, I thought, man, Now it's just like, there's this overwhelming, I don't, it it doesn't answer all my questions. Like Paul was just saying, it it can't, you know, this Mm -hmm. is too, this is too much. It's too big. And and just in my personal opinion, there's definitely something here. uh, And it's definitely something that's worth Christian thought, you know,
2: uh, for sure. Yeah. and, And part of the reason why I titled it that, and you could, you could probably tell just by reading it that my attention to psychology is all throughout the book. And I wanted to essentially equip people to improve their psychological state. So if somebody like you were, were to, you know, randomly have some encounter, you wouldn't be completely naked and left unequipped to like, know anything about what's happening to you. Right. So like, it's kind of a teaching mechanism that gives people a framework of even conceptualizing uh, the unknown. And so that that was forefront and in kind of my uh my intention.
3: Yeah. I mean I, I immediately noticed almost a sort of pastoral concern because of how you introduce, you know, your own story uh and your mm-hmm. own, you know, things that have happened to you and just your heart. I think, you know, your heart for people, for the church and for people who have been sort of maligned, and, you know, these these are sort of, I think that what you're talking about all through the book is a lot of sort of victimization. I mean, there's a lot of really bad stuff that has happened because of this, you know, yeah. cover-up, right? And as Christians, we should always be on the side of the crucified, and never on the side of the people who are doing the
1: crucifying. Yeah. Part, part of it, we don't know what to make of it, because, in part, because of the very nature of our governments obscuring, that's just the way they work, and not to project any kind of necessary ill intent, though we do know that, in fact, there has been a lot of evil done Mm -hmm. under the cloak of secrecy. So to my mind, whatever lesson you might take away from this, the notion that we can have a, a government system that functions with this high degree of secrecy so that even something like this we we don't know who to trust or what to believe i think it is a kind of uh sign of of the period in which we're passing through that, that we do not live in an open society and it's hard to to get our our bearings in in a world cloaked in secrecy
3: you know, I, I want to be able to trust people, you know, but I've learned throughout the years that there's not very many people who are actually worthy of trust. Right. And I don't know of hardly any institutions that are worthy of of my trust. You know, the JFK comparison from earlier, that, that that's to me like a legitimate comparison, if for no other reason that it, it, there appears at least to be some evidence that, uh, you know, our own government possibly allegedly killed a president. <laughs> It's like, well, if that's what we're dealing with and we know through, you know, forget about the UFO phenomenon or whatever, we know that the way the dissidents are dealt with, we know uh, how our government has worked in other countries around the world to silence uh, its its opposition, right? We know that, that sort of all these narratives that we've been told about all sorts of different things throughout the years are were just false. So in other words, like that existentially, I guess I was confronted with the fact of like, when I'm reading through all these different stories, especially the personal stories of people like Travis Walton and other people like that, it's like, well, why should I, and I do think that we live in a very problematic situation, right? In in our world history right now in that regard, it's like, what reasons is my government giving me to trust them? right? In a lot of ways, it's like, well, what reasons are the church? I work as a hospice chaplain. I talk to people all the time who are, quote-unquote, non-practicing Catholics, and a huge number of them are so precisely because they say that they feel like they can't trust the church anymore after all the different scandals, you know, the sex scandals, you know, in the Catholic church, and then you have uh, the other scandals, too, uh, you know, in the other parts of the church.
2: Yeah, we're living in a time where you have Christians leaving Institutions like church institutions, because they're Christian, <laughs> that's right? right? It's like that's right. It, like that's the reason that they're leaving. That's right. right because church is doing something that isn't Christian, and so right. I don't want to be a part of that because I am a Christian. So bye bye, right. right? Right. So yeah, what, and, what kind I mean, of irony is that?
3: No, that's that's a great point. And what's and here's a terrible point: some people like Paul are being let go or fired from Christian institutions because they're Christian. In other words, like right, a big reason why, and I don't want to, you know, get into Paul, I'll let you tell, you know, however much of the story you want to tell, but Paul was working at a very sort of conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist institution and was raising questions about is God violent, you know, is, is anger, you know, is the wrath of God, like an attribute of God, all sorts of questions like that, you know, was the, was penal substitution. Is that how the truth of things or whatever? And he was actually coming to a lot of, you know, I was telling him he needs to become Eastern Orthodox because he comes out on on, uh, Orthodox on all his sort of views, you know, Uh, I just kind of joke around with him like that. But in other words, him raising the questions in a profoundly Christian way, Mm-hmm. It was the very thing that got him fired but my my point is is that and your point is is that that's the the craziest thing about all this is that we live in a time where christians are leaving the church because they actually want to be christian And there's also Christian institutions who are getting rid of the people who want to be profoundly Christian. So it's like, man, that's a really confusing situation to be in, you know, for anybody. And so it's like, well, can we trust the economic situation? Can we trust the political? Can we trust the, you know, the corporation? It's like we're we're living in that time of like a profound cynicism. And my all this yammering to sort of bring about the point of your book is, is that maybe we should listen to the individuals who are coming forward at great personal risk to tell their stories, to be, you know, at the, at the risk of being ridiculed, fired, you know, Mm -hmm. possibly worse. um, Maybe we should as Christians, listen to them and help them if we can. That's a a great endeavor. I think that that, you know, just that one part of it, um, because I think that that teaches us as Christians that we should come, we should come at things like that with every situation you know whether it's a weird ufo story or whether you've been victimized by some sort of you know sexual abuse or or even verbal abuse or you know we have these problems with women being mistreated and stuff like that that we should be as leaders people that are saying let me hear your story i'm willing to listen
1: yeah that's the the church should be a place where people are given a voice i mean we just did the podcast with the three ladies in fact it's continuing that they've created, you know, Megan has created the Women's Chapel, that there is no voice given very often to women in a lot of institutional Christianity. The church needs to to give voice. And by the church, I don't mean any institution. You know, that's kind of the, mm-hmm. I, I think that the way this thing works now is in kind of the gorilla sort guerrilla bands, I like to think of it, that were kind of out here, in the wilderness by ourselves, the institutions per se have inevitably turned in upon themselves and become a cabal of power and secrecy in which cover-up is the natural instinct. And we're probably not going to get the truth in such a situation.
3: Man, wouldn't it be cool to be a part of something, you know, let's call it the church, where, you know, you can trust, you know, you you can sort of believe uh, in, you know, the the leadership or the things that you're being taught. I think that it's a courageous time right now for people who would truly want to follow Christ, for people who would want to stand up to Paul, you said in one of your, uh, one of my favorite lines that you ever said was in one of your blogs, where you said that we live in the belly of the beast, and we don't even realize it, we don't even know it um, in America. That's a pretty strong thing to say, you know, but man, how cool would it be if we had a place like this, you know, where people could come and uh, listen to one another and love one another, you know, sounds like that's, you know, the, what, what Christianity is supposed to be, but it's become in, in many ways, this, this, this thing, that's not that, you know,
1: um, Ambrose give us your, in a kind of uh sum up and conclusion, if you had to point to some, document some piece of information to say, oh, there is this, there is undoubtedly this recovery program of crash vehicles. Where would you point someone?
2: Um, So my favorite document is the the declassified top secret November 4th, 1948, document from the United States Air Forces Europe, or USAFE, which yet again talks about the reality of a crash retrieval program. It was found in uh, National Archive 2 in College Park, Maryland, in the United States Air Force Headquarters Intelligence Top Secret Files for 1948, and declassified by the National Archives and Records Administration in July 1997. And I wanted to read it because it it's it's a short document but it, the information is so explosive. So it says, "Quote, for some time we have been concerned with concerned by the recurring reports on flying saucers. They periodically continue to crop up. During the last week, one was observed hovering over Neubiberg Air Base for about 30 minutes. They have been reported by so many sources" and from such a variety of places that we are convinced that they cannot be disregarded and must be explained on some basis which is perhaps slightly beyond the scope of our present intelligence thinking. When officers of this directorate recently visited the Swedish Air Intelligence Service, this question was put to the Swedes. Their answer was that some reliable and and fully technically qualified people have reached the conclusion that these phenomena are obviously the result of a high technical skill which cannot be credited to any presently known culture on earth. They are therefore assuming that these objects originate from some previously unknown or unidentified technology possibly outside the earth. One of these objects was observed by a Swedish technical expert near his home on the edge of a lake. The object crashed or landed in the lake, and he carefully noted its azimuth from his point of observation. Swedish intelligence was sufficiently confident in his observation that a naval salvage team was sent to the lake. Operations were underway during the visit of USAFE officers. Divers had discovered a previously uncharted crater on the floor of the lake. No further information is available, but we have been promised knowledge of of the results. In their opinion, the observation was reliable, and they believe that the depression on the floor of the lake, which did not appear on current hydrographic charts, was in fact caused by a flying saucer. Although accepting this theory of origin of these objects, that is extraterrestrial, poses a whole new group of questions and puts much of our thinking in a changed light, we are inclined to not discredit entirely this somewhat spectacular theory, meantime keeping an open mind on the subject. What are your reactions? Unquote. Okay, let's process what we just heard for a second. First, this is an official declassified top secret document. So this represents a small window into what cleared military personnel were saying to each other behind the scenes in 1948. So there's no reason to believe that the perspective uh, reflects deception, especially since it ends with a question for peer review. Secondly, they said that just a week prior to this report, which would have been late October 1948, a flying saucer was hovering for 30 minutes over an air base in Germany. Airplanes don't hover, folks, let alone for 30 minutes. And this is 1948. I mean, what drone can you point to? And if this is not already astonishing enough, they even say that one of their Swedish technical experts watched a saucer dive into the lake, literally in his backyard, and left the crater in the lake bed, and that a naval crash retrieval team was sent to go get it. So we know, <laughs> we know for a fact that UFO crash retrieval teams existed as early as 1948. This document, single document, says it all. Now, it's also uh, recognized by insiders like Rick Doty that um, Air Force Colonel Wendell Stevens and Army Sergeant Clifford Stone were both part of DART teams. DART stands for Downed Aircraft Recovery Teams. Um, Because of all this evidence, both documentary and circumstantial, I believe with high confidence that Majestic was, in fact, a real special studies project, which was designed to retrieve foreign technology, reverse engineer it for the United States Research and Development. And I think this is currently being hidden as a black program in the Department of Energy, as Senator Daniel Inouye stated publicly in 1987, quote, there exists a shadowy government with its own air force, its own Navy, its own fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue its own ideas of the national interest, free from all checks and balances and free from the law itself, unquote. And it's interesting that he said, uh, its own Navy, reading about the Department of Naval Intelligence, right? So there's something there.
3: Ambrose, what other documents do you think are important for listeners to be aware of besides these ones you've been sharing with us?
2: It's it's interesting reading the declassified top secret um, December 10th, 1948, Air Intelligence Division Study Report Number 100-203-79, where they were going through and ruling out possible domestic manufacturers and models, such as the the XF-5U-1 Flying Flapjack, the Northrop B-35, and the Northrop YB-49, and uh, that's why they knew it wasn't United States technology and suspected it it may be Soviet tech developed by the aid of German scientists such as Dr. Gunther Bach. Uh, Side note, on September twenty twenty 1950, General Hoyt Vandenberg sent a message classified confidential, stating that this very document, concluding that UFOs were likely of interplanetary origin, should have all copies destroyed. You can look that up. Head of Blue Book, Edward Ruppelt, said that this was because the general, quote, the general said it would cause a stampede, unquote. Those are facts. It would have been incredibly easy to classify these things under such suspicions, even if the scientists, Uh, personally knew better. The investigators ultimately believed the saucers had to either be Soviet or extraterrestrial. Those were the only options. And it wasn't until September 30th, 1971, when the Soviets were ultimately dismissed as the source of the flying saucers meddling with our nuclear facilities in America. And when America was dismissed as the source of flying saucers meddling with nuclear facilities in Russia. (laughs) And this was when the uh, American-Soviet treaty was enforced. Section 224, uh, titled Agreement on Measures to Reduce the Risk of Outbreak of Nuclear War Between the United States of America and the, Soviet, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Article 3 of this treaty says the following, quote, The parties undertake to notify each other immediately in the event of detection by missile warning systems Of unidentified objects, or in the event of signs of interference with these systems, or with related communications facilities, if such occurrences could create a risk of outbreak of nuclear war between the two countries. Unquote. This is a fact that anyone can go Google, and it's because uh, obviously you don't want to misinterpret aliens for some foreign nation and then start World War III against an innocent party. <laughs> I already mentioned uh the 1967 Malmstrom Air Force Base incident in Montana last time, so I won't repeat myself, but that that was a major reason for this uh legislation. I'll I'll add that the NATO command sergeant major Robert Dean talked about this hap- this kind of thing happening in the 1960s because shape headquarters in France was uh, seeing saucer fleets coming from the Eastern Warsaw Pact region, flying over, flying west over the English Channel, and then redirecting to uh, disappear north over the Norwegian Sea. Both uh, United States and Russia suspected each other until eventually they realized the other couldn't have produced this technology. Consensus reality thus far currently believes that the H-bomb was the most classified thing in the United States in the 1940s. But this is false, as we have been slowly learning with the testimony of recent whistleblowers like David Grush. The fact of the matter is, there is nothing in the history of the United States, then or now, that has been more highly classified than the UFO retrieval and reverse engineering R&D program and all that this involves. The Air Technical Intelligence Center, ATIC, at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, was eventually renamed the Foreign Technology Division. And I think this is a very telling change. In my suspicion, uh, all extraterrestrial metamaterial was hidden under the extremely broad umbrella of, quote-unquote, foreign technology, and the drive to first suspect everything as an invention of Soviet communists. We already know for a fact, according to official declassified documents, that the US military was concerned that the UFOs they were seeing may represent some supremely advanced Soviet technology beyond anything the United States had in their classified arsenal. Therefore, I think I made a persuasive case for why a top secret research and development group involved with uh, retrieving and reverse engineering downed aircraft logically. Must have existed for as long as there have been airplanes, and some of those crashes are fundamentally non-terrestrial.
3: I mean, you can see why they would, why this would be more classified, right? Even than the you know nuclear weapons and stuff like that. It's as your book points out, though, that you know if anything's unknown, it gets overclassified, and so you yeah. know it, it takes uh, Herculean effort to put together the research and things like that to figure out what's really going on.
2: Yeah, and that's because unknown means possibly
1: Soviet. That's what that
2: right.
3: means. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right.
1: And so, the explain it a little bit, Ambrose. That uh, why would it be uh, specifically classified higher than than the nuclear projects?
2: I I can only speculate on that. It's it's probably because a a an H bomb. simply technology it's there's nothing necessarily existential about that it has nothing to do with like our place in the universe or you know like human history or anything like that the crashing of alien spaceships represents not just technology but so many other things about humanity it's 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 really existential it's really like It provokes questions about who we are, and so I think there's so much more that just encompasses that subject that that an H bomb doesn't have. But again, I'm just speculating.
3: But not only that, you know, we know what the capabilities of a nuclear or hydrogen bomb are, right? In other words, like we know what technology we have, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: but if we're also aware that there's technology out there that we have no idea what it is, what it can do, where it came from how it, you know, does what it does. In other words, it's like, it's classified, you know, it's even more sort of a mystery, right? It's like, in other words, like, as far as the government's concerned, there's no mystery. We know how the, what the bomb is, how it works, et cetera. But with some of this information, it's like, yeah, but if this technology or this information gets into the wrong hands, personally, I think it's that we'll fall behind, you know, woefully behind. In other words, like I would think that our government would say, okay, if, if the Chinese or the Russians or whoever else get, you know, can reverse engineer this technology more quickly than we can, or if they're, they somehow, you know, uh, make discoveries before us or whatever due to our own failures of intelligence, right, that are we're literally going to lose, you know, that these people like, you know, Commander David Fravor and other people say, that the reason why, in their opinion, this technology does not belong to any other human, you know, any other nation is because it's so vastly beyond our concepts of physics, of all the different things that are associated with that, you know, with G Force, etc. That you know, Jeremy Corbell always says, you know, whoever gets to this stuff first wins. You know, in other words, it's going it would just totally revolutionize um energy. Uh, even if it wasn't used for nefarious purposes, right? Whoever, you know, so Ambrose was talking earlier about the different, um, you know, the Boeings of the world, the different, you know, Lockheed Martins, et cetera, that, you know, if if they are working on this technology, whoever gets there first sort of wins, you know, the race for possibly like domination of, of the human species or whatever.
2: Yeah, and if you look at what whistleblowers have been saying, particularly I look at Philip J. Corso, the army colonel, he already said that the recovery of this material is why we made a breakthrough with the transistor in 1948. He, he said that because he was part of this, uh, he would go to like different contractors. The government classified intelligence groups that were involved in reverse engineering were studying the material and they partnered with Bell Labs. and And that resulted in the breakthrough of the transistor, which then completely changed Technology from then on, because of course it was said that they they were actually at a a point of stagnation. They didn't, they needed something to push them to, to that breakthrough. And this material was what did it. And he also said that they learned about night, night vision, night vision technology exists today because all the way back then they did an autopsy on a gray alien. They looked at the, the black film that was over the eye. And they they realized that it could see in the dark, and that's what, that's what inspired the technology of night vision. And so, like this is like the stuff that's been going on behind the scenes with our our R and D complex, the military industrial complex that has been completely classified. And then these whistleblowers are just coming out and like revealing this information that goes into like computers and. Flat screen TVs and all of that. Weapons. Weapons. Yeah. Lasers.
3: Well, you know, we're talking about the 1940s here. Right. And so there's a couple of things that happen. Of course, you know, we did the thing on Oppenheimer, you know, the atomic bombs are unleashed on Japan. And then Ambrose, you can correct me on this, but um, I think I have it right that it's right around this time that UFO reports uh, sort of go through the roof. Who knows about the unreported stuff? Right. And I don't have all the the dates right. I mean, I know that Roswell Mm -hmm. happened in 47. So in other words, like there's these different events that happen. There's the, you know, there's the atomic bombs that are dropped. Uh, then roswell you know then these different things you're talking about but there's also like this technological explosion and i mean i'm this is pure speculation on my part here right but you and i were talking offline about this that since possibly the 1940s until now i mean think about the leaps yeah you know it's not a coincidence yeah yeah it's it's like you know i mean you're willing to say like just flat out that it's not a I mean i'm sort of raising the question to say man is that a coincidence that if you look before 1940 uh you know into the mm-hmm. you know bc or whatever right. it's like man we have really crazy took a crazy leap, you know, in the last Mm -hmm. like 75 years or whatever. I mean, we have the internet now. I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, we're talking on a, on zoom on a Mac and you know, everything now has transistors and microchips and all this stuff. And we have electric cars and it's like, it's Mm -hmm. like, boy, it really does seem weird. that In the last 75 years, we have taken a colossal leap a technological leap. That's even more colossal. I would think than the industrial revolution itself was compared to the history that preceded it.
2: Mm-hmm. A lot of that started with Nikola Tesla. He's really the first one to uh, conceptualize. And he doesn't even credit this to himself. He like had a vision. <laughs> he, mm. his, he spent his whole life trying to build the wingless flying machine mm. that, you know, we call flying saucer today. But yeah, yeah. it's it's very interesting.
3: And, and do I have that right? That uh, was it right after Nagasaki and Hiroshima that the UFO sort of become a thing, or I know, I know that in your research, you show that this has been a thing for a long time, but it really, was it just more of like a public explosion into like the consciousness of the people that this was the thing during that time? Or was there legit, like legitimately an uptick? I mean, you, you talked earlier, it's so easy for us to forget about this. We weren't alive, but man, if there were UFOs flying over the white house in our lifetime, boy, we would never forget about that. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like, that's a pretty crazy story.
2: Yeah, I think what ended up happening was that up until the 40s, the UFO occupants were kind of in control of when they would appear. And then we started setting off some bombs and essentially blowing them out of the sky. <laughs> and, the, and I think that's, that's really what started to change. Is we started to, uh, like Ross, Colonel Ross Edrickson said, we started polluting the atmosphere. And that was bringing the, bringing the saucers down. So I, I think we we as a human race kind of stumbled into the archons. <laughs> it's like, oh, they they've been up there, I guess, because we've been blowing up these atomic bombs. That that's just my knee-jerk opinion.
3: Yeah. I mean, but you, you also do the you know, the work where you show, you know, there's all this stuff that's going on with the with edgar mitchell the astronaut you know what was he the seventh man to walk on the moon and he's uh right. the you know the WikiLeaks show that he's talking with uh was it john podesta you know yeah and he's saying things like the well, the, you know, they're trying to give us zero point energy, uh, and they absolutely will not tolerate any violence in space, uh, or on the earth. And it may possibly for the reasons that you're now, again, we're just, we're getting, we're wading into waters here that are weird, you know, and we, we all understand that, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's like, you know, so at some point it's just, you know, it becomes just pure speculation, but whenever you yeah. put all the pieces together and say, well, there was a guy who was on the moon, you know, who, uh, came back and said, well, you know, there's, we, we actually, I think that, uh, Edgar Mitchell said it even, uh, more strongly than that, right? It's, it sounded like he was saying that we have communications and and, and all this stuff, right? With with these extraterrestrial mm-hmm. that possibly even contracts or treaties or whatever you want to call it. Neil Armstrong, you know, you have the photo in your in your in your book. Neil Armstrong takes a picture with his own camera uh, of mm-hmm. like a, of a tic tac, you know, and then they take don't they like they took his picture and like what you give it back to him, and that that's happened a lot with the, with the astronauts where they've their own personal sort of pictures are just, uh, you know, taken away or scrubbed or whatever. And maybe we're getting off topic and those are things that we can talk about, you know, in the, in future, um, conversation.
2: Yeah, we, we can save that for a future episode.
3: Yeah.
1: Cause cool. there's a lot,
3: there's a lot more, man. We're just scratching the yeah. surface again. We're just talking about the
1: 1940s right now. And you I know. guess that brings us to the last question. And that is, I know Jimmy Carter has talked openly, mm-hmm. uh, about the uh his his belief and he's a you know a good Baptist but are there other people uh substantial Christians who have in fact acknowledged this yeah I wanted to provide
2: three Christian testimonies from the 1940s which reflect a distinctly civilian uh, witness to the reality of an alien crash retrieval program in the 1940s and emphasizing civilian that this is not a military institutional thing. That this is just regular regular Christian people, right? So the, the first is the Southern Baptist pastor, Reverend William Guy Huffman, who uh, experienced an event on April 12th, 1941, at Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Uh, Reverend Huffman went with his neighbor, Milton Cobb, Who at the time was the local justice of the peace, uh, to what he thought was a plane crash site to pray for people and provide spiritual support for those who might need it. Pretty standard procedure here. But what he found was not an airplane at all, but a smooth, silvery metallic saucer with no edges or seams. And on the inside were tiny pilot seats and arcane hieroglyphic symbols. He reported seeing four foot tall, thin, gray-skinned corpses adorned in silvery coveralls reminiscent of aluminum foil, all identical to one another as if cloned. He saw no blood anywhere. One of the creatures was still alive, and Reverend Huffman prayed over it before it died. Huffman was emotionally conflicted, being both saddened by the grim event and disturbed by the foreignness of the encounter. He said that eventually U.S. Army personnel In yellowish tan uniforms came to the scene, took over everything, commanding everyone to basically shut up and leave and never speak of this again. According to his wife, Floyd Huffman, William was never the same after that night when he got home and told them what he saw. And this is on page uh, 128 of my book. Uh, The second Christian is uh, Reverend Turner Hamilton Holt, who also described around the same time period. This is somewhere between 1940 and 1944. Uh, he he was taken to Washington, D.C. by his cousin, who was then Secretary of State Cordell Holt. According to the Reverend's daughter, Anna Lucille Holt, Turner Holt was a part of some advisory committee. Cordell Holt took Reverend Holt to a subterranean location underneath Washington, D.C. Capitol building and showed him four glass containment chambers. Holding alien bodies in formaldehyde. I must reiterate that these are not these are the testimonies of not just Christians, but Christian pastors, and we are thus far many years before Roswell, and uh, already we can see civilians reporting that non-human beings were retrieved from UFO crash sites and secretly taken into custody by U.S. military to be studied, and of course the one in charge of all the major research and development at the time, was Vannevar Bush. Uh, Now, nine months or so after Roswell, so this is in March 25th, 1948, the Baptist preacher Solon Lemley Brown also encountered a UFO crash site after recently reopening Colorado's first Baptist church of of, uh, Mancos, which had been closed. He would frequently travel to the Four Corners uh, border region, uh, which is Arizona, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, visiting and preaching at different churches. While he was on his way to Mancos, uh, he, he was directed to a dirt road outside of Aztec, New Mexico, in the area of the Heart Canyon Mesa. He thought he was about to find some kind of ruptured pipeline accident. So he went to investigate to see if anyone needed a clergyman. What he actually found was a disc-shaped aircraft which had crashed. There were a bunch of people standing around studying it, talking amongst themselves. Pastor Brown looked inside and saw dead child-sized bodies slumped over what he thought was a control panel. Of course, the military arrived on the scene, took over the site, commanded him to secrecy, and then kicked him out. When he arrived at Mancos with tears in his eyes, he told deacon Bruce Sayer and his onlooking son Walter Sayer what he experienced should not change their Christian beliefs, but it might change, quote, change how they looked at life on this planet and in the outer heavens, unquote. So there you go. You don't even need to solely rely on Uh, military or or the government to tell us about the existence of a UFO crash retrieval program because civilian Christian pastors have already testified to its existence all the way back in the 1940s.
3: Very interesting. Well, I just wanted to ask about, you know, well, first of all, those stories of the Christian pastors that you told are just, again, scratching the surface. You tell all sorts of different stories uh, in your book from different people um, who were faithful Christians. Uh, one of my favorite yeah. story, stories in the book is the um, forgetting her name now, but the lady who was in her kitchen and she was, you know, Betty Andreessen, Be- Betty Andreas, Yeah, uh, that's a great story. anybody can look that one up. But there's all sorts of stories like that of just regular, you know, faithful Christian people who, again, are risking it all by <laughs> coming forward with, a, you know, a story as as uh, sort of dramatic as Betty Andreessen's.
2: Also, Kelly Cahill, had Kelly Cahill in mind a lot in my book, the negative reaction that people would have against Christian experiencers. I often thought of Kelly Cahill. Tell that story. She had an experience that her first experience was when she was having kind of a, she was Pentecostal and she was married to a Muslim man. There was a a time when she spent like a crazy amount of time in her room praying and like her husband would take care of the kids and like just let her do her thing. She needed like a, a prayer retreat, essentially. Mm-hmm. That was the first time she had a, a wild experience, feeling a presence enter the room. Mind you, this is somebody who's reading the Bible and praying. It is not somebody who's right you know, summoning the devil with pentagrams. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So she's praying in a room. She feels a, an overwhelming, ominous presence enter the room. The husband sees a light flash in the sky while this is happening. At the end of her her prayer experience, she looked like miserable. <laughs> it's like she, she was just a mess, needed a shower, all this stuff. But but that that was the beginning of her experiences. Mm. So that was before all of the UFO stuff. She in her mind, that was an encounter with God. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Then that's she's then uh like months later, she goes on a trip to a friend's house with her husband. Then that's when she has her first UFO encounter. And that's when she realized that it was the same thing, it was the same experience because yeah. what she felt with the UFO stuff was the same as what she felt in her room when she was praying. I was just fascinated by by her account in particular, because this is somebody who is a Pentecostal Christian who is praying with the Bible and encounters the UFO phenomenon. Hmm. I just wanted to emphasize that in, in the book.
3: Yeah, and and now that you say that, I, rem- I remember reading that story and feeling the same way. Um, it is. It might be easy to sort of discount, you know, and to say, oh, well, you know, this person was having an episode or or whatever, until you hear that same story over and over and mm-hmm. over and over, right, from all these different types of people and they have all these different similarities, right? I wanted to ask you earlier when we were talking about, you know, the courage that it takes for people to come forward to their spiritual authority, um, whether to, or just any authority in general, right. To be a whistleblower or to just maybe relate a similar story to the one you were just telling. And then, you know, what's happening a lot of times, and I'm not expecting you to have like a full answer to this, but you talk about it in your book, you know, that people come forward and their spiritual authority says, Oh, well that was a demon. Chris Bledsoe.
2: Chris Bledsoe. That's what happened
3: to him. Oh, so and Chris Bledsoe just came out with a very popular book. What's the what's the title?
2: UFO of God.
3: UFO of God. Right. So um, which is very it's, you know, getting, you know, really good reviews and people seem to really like it. And I've not read it yet myself. I enjoyed it. I read it. Okay. Yeah. I'd like to, what we're getting at is that there's a lot of people that are just like, you know, kind of like, just like us or just like our listeners who are just trying to figure out, you know, this God thing they're studying, they're praying, they're having these conversations. They're going to church. They're trying to live, right. They're trying to repent all this Mm. stuff, you know? Uh, And then they have like these weird. And so the title of your book again, is angels, archons, and aliens. So Remember, we're just talking about the 1940s and some of the historical stuff, but I think that your book really is more of a the- theological sort of examination. I mean, Jesus is on the cover, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's about yeah. God. You know, this book is about asking theological questions to, you know, really difficult questions and perhaps mm-hmm. not even finding as many answers as we would like. But part of your entry point into that is to say, hey, look at all these stories, uh, not just, you know, military, like you've been talking about today or declassified documents, but look at these stories from pastors and look for these people over here who are unbelievers, but they have like a similar story. And, you know, so you're just kind of bringing all this different evidence together. But what would you say to someone or what are your thoughts uh, on kind of like that? Because I can't I can see that being like almost like the easy answer for a pastor to give or something to say, well, you know, it was Satan appearing as an angel of light or, or or whatever the answer. And maybe there's, I don't know, you know, maybe there's some right. truth in that or whatever. It's like, so what do you think's either the danger there or what do you think's going on?
2: That is that is the most common, like, Christian response is that it's all just demons. Mm-hmm. Of course, um, I addressed this more in a recent uh, substack. You can kind of make the connection by reading the book. Basically, the reason why that argument doesn't really mean anything is because. Uh, number one, people forget to ask themselves, what even is a demon, right? So, like, at, at the most basic level, like the official, like, Oxford dic- Oxford Dictionary definition, right, talks about uh, the Greek word daimon, right? And when you go back to the original use in the first century, what a daimon was, it is not what Christians think is a demon. This is essentially just a, uh, it was believed to be a Spirit, which may may or may not be evil, may be good, evil, you know, ambivalent. But it was believed to possess abilities that we don't have here, right, in our physical form. But it wasn't until the um, the post kind of Septuagint era where the word began to shift, and then you have like Justin Martyr popularizing this kind of mythology around. He he, he kind of associates the Nephilim event as being the source of all demons and it's like every demon is just like the soul of a, a deceased Nephilim which I think is too simplistic and that I, that can't be correct and then other people have like this idea that like the Lucifer fallen angel mythologies which I go over in the book why that's also not correct um that that whole mythology is a conglomeration of so many different things that the end result is a is a cartoon that's not even real at at its core it's a false dichotomy this idea that you know they're not extraterrestrials they're demons well that's a false dichotomy how do you know a demon isn't also an extraterrestrial right you don't know that and so um i wrote in my book that the The problem with the aliens or demons argument is that it selectively biases the data in the negative direction and ignores everything to the contrary if if you want to make the argument that the malevolent ets which these people would say are demons if, if if you want to make the argument that they can be equated with historic encounters with demons, which I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that point. I'm just disagreeing with the with the uh label. But then you would also have to make the connection that you could you can equate the the benevolent ETs with angels. Like so we can't define the phenomenon by its darkest aspects. And so like I said, just because something is quote unquote demonic, which just means malevolent, that's all we mean by that word, doesn't mean it's not also extraterrestrial. No, no christian can definitively say where where demons originate because that's an unknown we don't know that and so there's no reason why we why anyone should rule out the possibility that some demons are extraterrestrial aliens i mean why rule that out why can't we suggest that like maybe some demons are some um intelligent force from mars that came here i have no problem affirming any of that because that's just there really is nothing in the in the Christian tradition that uh, informs any of this, because it's so vague. It's really a, a word that's kind of possessed by nothing. This word demon. Um, and if you look at the iconography throughout the years, a demon can look like anything. A demon can be a, a kind of a silhouetted void, right? A demon could could look like a reptilian creature. It could look like some kind of furry goat thing with tusks. (laughs) Like like the iconography is all over the place. You could say a a evil person is a demon, right? The people who make these arguments, I don't think they're actually thinking about what they're saying and and how just inadequate it is as an explanation.
3: Yeah. And Paul's always been helpful here too with, I think that... um... He's talked before about how we can sort of oversimplify angelology, demonology, and things like that, and and Mm -hmm. not really know what we're talking about. Paul has done a lot with sort of the evil forces that are at work, not discounting the fact that there might be some sort of like personal beings who are malevolent or whatever but mm-hmm. that these, these forces seem to manifest themselves though, in things like institutions, <laughs> where there's a sort of a force, there's kind of a, a bond or a sort of a group think, or you know, we talked mm-hmm. about this with the Oppenheimer, you know, that you get swept up, you see it with St. Peter, even when he's in the, you know, he's warming his hand by the fire and he was just with Jesus and just said, I'll die for you. And then this little girl says, weren't you one of them? And, you know, he says, mm-hmm. he starts cursing and all this stuff. In other words, like there's this immense sort of, like there's this force, there's this some powerful, thing that we could just you know we do this all the time we could say that's demonic right mm-hmm. um, so it's ambiguous and I think that that's yeah. your point and you do the same thing with angels you say well the word just means mm-hmm. messenger It, can, it's, right. it it's, be, it's come to sort of be um, you know, sort of very unhelpful to to really be specific about something. We mm-hmm. don't know exactly what, how, you know, Saint Gabriel communicated with the Theotokos right. or whatever. We don't know exactly what's going on there, you know. And so I don't think that you discount, you know, that there might be literal, you know, cherubim and seraphim surrounding the throne of God and, and doing God's work and all this stuff, and that there might be malevolent forces to do the same. You're simply mm-hmm. making the point that yeah, but we don't have enough data to say whether there may be, you know, either corporeal or incorporeal extraterrestrial beings that could also be, you know, interdimensional, these sort of forces or whatever else that could also be involved in our world. Correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and the point I make is that if like, let's, let's grant this conceptual extraterrestrial, right? Let's say some Martian is evil, comes to earth, interacts with some monk somewhere in the desert, Mm -hmm. What do you think that monk is going to say?
3: Right. <laughs> I mean, you show this it's in a the demon. book. Yeah, right. you do. I mean, with St. Anthony, I was really, um, it was kind of a cool moment because I was reading through, I've read, you know, the life of of, of Anthony and stuff like that. So I was like a little familiar with some of the desert fathers. Um, yeah. But then you kind of start pointing out, you know, Anthony's walking down the road. and He sees like, this silver disc. I think mm-hmm. that's like how he explains it. A yeah, um, large silver disc. A large silver disc. That's is, the life of
2: Anthony chapter 11.
3: Yeah, there you go. It's one of those kind of things where it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it kind of thing. You kind of, you kind of planted that sea where it's like, oh, now if I'm reading through the Desert Fathers and there's something weird like that, or even in the, you know, you bring it out with the scriptures too. You say, well, the things that that happen with Philip, whenever he gets, you know, sort of transported, I don't know the Greek word, but to, what is it, to Zotus or whatever that.
2: Like violently taken
3: he is violently taken t- like,
2: abducted.
3: Yeah, we would call that an, an abduction, you know, and it's like yeah. it's weird. I'm not saying that it is or it isn't, but what I'm saying yeah. is is once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? And you start reading the scriptures and you're like, man, that's that's weird. The star, quote unquote, is moving, you know. Um mm-hmm. or, you know, all these different things in the scriptures. So we'll get into that and hopefully in the yeah. future new, uh talks, you know. But sure. it is super interesting, man. I really appreciate uh I,
2: I wanted to add yeah. um in the in the uh, virginia ufo crash yeah in brazil in i believe it was 1997 maybe 1996 or 1997 i forget which one the mother of the three women the three girls who saw the creature you know what she said what'd she say she said it was it was the devil mm-hmm. right that's right that's right and so uh people people will just use whatever their conceptual right. framework is their semantics whatever right. language makes sense to them. Sure. They're going to use that. Like, was that literally the devil? No, right. it was an alien, <laughs> <laughs> but, but because like it, it was something foreign, something mm-hmm. that looked scary. Mm-hmm. uh, They just jumped in a, you know, Brazilian Catholic mind. Mm-hmm. The only thing that fits the cal- category is the devil. Part of what I'm trying to do in my book is, is to, is to c- try to, make christians think about these things in a more sophisticated way and not so simplistic because it's been very childlike for a very long time and so instead of saying everything is just you know one one good guy up there battling one bad guy and just a bunch of angels and demons let's start asking more questions about okay well what is their distinctions here what does this look like where did where do they come from what are their what's their agenda these Mm. types of things. What's their anatomy? Paul, what do you think? Are there aliens or not?
1: (laughs) I like, I think this is actually where we may have concluded our previous conversation, and that is that, as Ambrose is describing, we really, we often picture spiritual beings as disembodied beings, but as I understand it, God is the only one who is spiritual in that sense. And so what he's describing, I think, is that the spiritual realm intersects or may intersect in a very physiological fashion with, you know, the human realm. We don't know that, you know, uh, but that is an explanation, I think, that is interesting. So if by your question, do I believe in the spiritual realm? Well, of course I do. Do I completely comprehend how that realm might intersect with our world? I don't. Yeah, it's not a it's not like it's again that I've got some formed opinion about this, but I think I'm open to a lot of different possibilities here. Is that satisfying as an answer? No. <laughs> I wanted a yes or no. No. Um
3: no, it's always a lot of fun. Uh, I love speculating, uh, you know, and learning about. I mean, these are historical things that I think that most people, including me, before I read the book, didn't know. I think that we start there and we start to unpack the history and and, and the testimony that you know the eyewitness testimony, and we we wander together, you know, about about this. Um, it's it's fascinating, and again, I would encourage anybody to go out and get. Uh, Angels, Archons, and Aliens by Ambrose Andriano. Wherever books are sold, I think it's excellent and it's fun. It's it's not a it's not a boring book. It's it's actually it's it's a lot of fun and very
1: educational. We appreciate it, Ambrose. You I'm glad you could do this.
2: I really appreciate that. Until uh, next time.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth